A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to your book, the podcast for literary nosy parkers. I'm your book inspector, Daisy Buchanan. If you're new to the podcast, I'd love to tell you all about my debut novel, Insatiable, a story for greedy girls. It's the story of Violet and what happens when she rebounds from a breakup by throwing herself willingly into a wild, sexually experimental world with both of her new bosses-to-be. It's a romantic comedy of sorts with jokes, hopes and orgies. There's a special edition available for your book listeners to pre-order from Waterstones. Huge thanks to everyone who has already pre-ordered. It is the very best way that you can support the podcast and I love you for it. Now, our guest this week is, as far as I know, the second ever your booked author to have been to jail. But we're here because he's written over 30 books and sold, we estimate, over 330 million His latest, The Excellent Hidden in Plain Sight, the second in the William Warwick Detective series, is out on October 29th. It is, of course, Geoffrey Archer. We talked about art, drugs, Jilly Cooper, and how to really annoy someone with a Harrods hamper. Congratulations on Hidden in Plain Sight. Thank you. I think it's really thrilling when an author has a kind of multiverse... And you think of that as being something in the world of superheroes and comic books, but that sort of that layering of characters and stories that sort of take place where there's a a commonality of people, even if it's not the same story following on. But I was wondering whether there are any other books uh, that you haven't written that you've read and loved where characters show up. Yes, I'm not aware of doing it, to be honest. It's interesting you, you make that point. As a child, I liked Ian Fleming and the Bond books, and of course, characters kept appearing again and again, sometimes only for a couple of pages. Uh, and he was very good at that, he was very clever at that. Uh, and of course, we all know that, that the books don't have a lot to do with the films nowadays, in the sense that <laughs> Fleming actually was a damn good storyteller and a fine writer. The films have gone in almost another direction. Which was the first Ian Fleming book that you read, and how did you encounter it? It was in a... Uh, what I would now call an Oxfam shop. I was very young, had no money, and I think I paid about sixpence for it. Uh, uh, It was called Casino Royale. I couldn't put it down. I thought he had that amazing gift of making you want to turn the page. And I think I'd read them all within a week. You know, that doesn't happen very often in your life, in one's lifetime, that... You discover an author who you've not heard of, but I was only 16 or 17 at the time, and, but in, and gets 
more and more difficult in later life to suddenly discover an author and then want to read everything they've written. In fact, I'm so old now that if that does happen, I, I read them very slowly. I, d I don't want them to finish. I don't want to finish them in a week. I want to enjoy them. I know that in various interviews you've talked about, you know, being a, a writer for all of your life, really, an age, and being aware... Um, I don't know if this is true or not, but um, it was mentioned in a press release that you're, you know, had some anxiety or some force behind you, I guess, wanting to finish this series while you could. Do you ever feel that way about reading? Well, I have books that certainly fall into that category. Uh, but of the, class of the classics, I think I've either read them or got to page 30 and said, what is all the fuss about? This doesn't appeal to me. So I'm not reading books a second time or a third time in some cases, but always looking, always looking for something exciting. I mean, lots of people advising me, saying, have you read this, Geoffrey? Have you read that? And they hit the button about one in three, one in four. It's not a bad hit rate. No, I, I agree with you. I'm... I'm surprised by, uh, well, I shouldn't be really, how different we all are. Some people love one type of book and they read them all in no time at all. Another person, I say, have you read X? And uh, they say no, and then they ring me back and say, I didn't enjoy it. So we, we mustn't assume other people's tastes. What was the last book you read that really surprised you? Is there anything where you thought, oh, I'm not sure I'm going to enjoy this? And then... You found it quite propulsive and immersive. It sort of happens in a different way. A book is recommended to you and you think, well, it's not me. And then you're shocked. I certainly felt that with a gentleman in Moscow. I thought, uh, that doesn't sound an interesting theme to me, a man getting stuck in a hotel. Uh, but it was absolutely unputdownable and beautifully written. So yes, that does happen occasionally. That was the best example that year. And that same year, actually, or it may have been the year before, I didn't think uh, the tattooist from Auschwitz would appeal to me. I thought the subject would was immediately off-putting. And, and again, it was unputdownable. I, I found it remarkable. Remarkable, I suppose, because it had been written with the cooperation of the man who had been the tattooist from Auschwitz. So it had a a feeling of non-fiction about it as well as fiction. We've actually had um, Emil Tolls, the author of A Gentleman in Moscow, on the podcast. And he is someone, I think, you know, like you, writes in that a way that is, is very gripping. I don't know if you'd agree with this or not. I think of you very much as a, a reader's writer, a reader's author, oh, very which much. is a compliment. Uh, he has a genuine gift for storytelling, but he's also a fine writer. Mm. I mean, when I read it, I thought, I'm dealing with a very well-educated man, a very well-informed man, uh, but he can tell a tale. Well, one of the most beautiful and exciting things I saw in his apartment, I was going to tell you where he lived then, I thought, no, even now, in these socially distant times, I don't want necessarily to send um, in New people York. over to his address. Um, but Amul um, Tells had a fabulous set of first edition um, Ian Fleming's, all the Bond books, so... Um, it all comes back to Bond. <laughs> yes. Well, a good storyteller. Uh, 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 and I have first editions as well. I've been collecting them for years. It's such fun to have a first edition, to actually have them to hold. And some of them, of course, 
Some of those first editions only sold a couple of thousand. They didn't sell many because, of course, if you get the author's first book, you get uh, an author's first book, the, the numbers are very small indeed, and they become the ones, of course, that are most sought after and most collected. Uh, what's the jewel in your collection? I have behind me, just over there, um, a non-such edition of Dickens, the entire collection. In uh, I'm actually sitting in my flat in London at the moment, but in my home in Cambridge, um, I have first editions of Dickens, and I think... Because A Tale of Two Cities is my favourite Dickens book, I suppose I will say that I'm most proud of the first edition of uh, A Tale of Two Cities. But in truth, I have a first edition of A Christmas Carol that is illustrated, originally illustrated. So it's a, a remarkable book. Uh, mind you, when I first started collecting some, oh, I don't know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, first editions were really quite cheap. They, they were quite easy to find in bookshops that specialised in that area, and they were not expensive. They've now suddenly gone through the roof. The game has changed. And if you're a collector now, it's a very expensive hobby. I'd love to go back to A Tale of Two Cities and find out when you first read that and what makes it your favourite or, or the most resonant of Dickens' stories. Well, it's, it's a, it's a her heroic, romantic story. <laughs> That's a start. Um, I read it probably 15, 16 when I was at school. It was part of the syllabus. Uh, and you rather thought, you know, I'd like to read outside the syllabus. Not in this case. I thought it was a, a, ter a terrific work. It, it is, of course, as everyone knows, his shortest novel. Uh, so you're not... I mean, Great Expectations will take you a couple of weeks. But <laughs> A Tale of Two Cities is very gripping and, and uh, can be done. I would recommend it to young people because it's... It's, it's bite size, is a tale of two cities. And of course, it's a, a, a wonderfully romantic and, uh, story and, and not what I would call the usual Dickens. It, I, I wouldn't say, well, that's what, if you've read that, you understand Dickens. That, of course, wouldn't be true. It's a bit of a one off. I think it's really interesting when, you know, every so often there is a book at school that you do connect with. And as you say, usually you think, oh, I don't want to read what I've been given. Thank you. I'd rather find my own book. But when something does you know, connect with you and stay with you. Yes, I think the best example of that for me is The Count of Monte Cristo. I thought that when I was a child, I thought that was the most amazing book. And it was quite recently that I discovered reading a biography of Dumas that he wrote... Um, the Count of Monte Cristo and The Three Musketeers in the same year. And people nowadays say, oh, well, I mean, this book take me two or three years and 300 pages. Count of Monte Cristo is 1,700 pages and The Three Musketeers is six or 700 pages. He wrote them both in the same year. Of course, the public then must have been very demanding because there was no television, no radio, no other, very little other form of entertainment. Mm. So, and I suppose the other part of that is you could write with fewer distractions. Yes, oh, far fewer. Not quite in his case, Daisy, one has to say. He was a, a, an inveterate gambler and was always in debt. And one of the reasons he uh, wrote so much was because he spent his life paying off debts he was an inveterate womanizer, and that cost him a lot of money. 
and he was a, a, he was in a way a complete layabout but in practice god knows how many hours a day he must have been spending to produce that amount of work of course i tried myself or oh, some 20 years ago to do a modern count of monte cristo called a prisoner of birth and the one thing i realized was that it would have to be about 500 pages. It could not be 2,000. The modern public <clears throat> don't want a 2,000-page book. Uh, and if a publisher found it, they'd turn it into four books, <laughs> just like that. They wouldn't give it a... Oh, we cut here, Jeffrey, and we'll, put, and we'll cut here, Jeffrey, and we'll do it. So I tried to do that. I tried to write a modern um, Count of Monte Cristo, which was a terrific challenge, because if you're trying to... Uh, do a modern version of your favourite book, it has a lot of lot of problems. I am always drawn to stories about writers who do their best work when they have, you know, nothing to lose. You know, when we were talking about um, The Count of Monte Cristo and this idea that you you write brilliantly because you must fund all the other things. <laughs> how how do I pay for the gambling and wine and women? I better, I better write a book. And that that almost forces your hand more than sitting down and being like, I must produce yet more genius. Well, Jane Austen, of course, is the other extreme from Dumas, living with her parents in what one would call a refined village community, writing in her bedroom so that people didn't realise she was actually writing, and sometimes before even her close friends realised they were in the presence of the greatest writer-storyteller of their age. Dumas, on the other hand was a national figure in Paris early in his career and well-known by everyone. And of course, Dickens, uh, they waited for his work on street corners. They waited to buy uh, supplements. They la waited to buy the next chapter of a book. Uh, so it differs through the ages. The one consistent thing when you go through those names is the storytelling. It's the storytelling in the end that survives. I quite like spending time with characters sometimes when not very much is happening. A joke I have with um, my friend Sarah Manning, who's a, a great writer, is uh, Ballet Shoes by Noel Stratfield. It's lots of sort of administrative chapters about theatre licences for um, young children and teenagers in the 1930s. And you think that shouldn't be interesting to any reader, especially not her target reader of 10-year-old girls. But it's fascinating. Yes, I think you, you should not try and guess who your readers are, because you'll get it wrong. Um, I'm currently 60% women, 40% men, and they did a survey on me about 10 years ago with out a cover, without a title, without an author, and 60% of the readers thought I was a woman, which actually I took as a great compliment. <laughs> that didn't worry me one little bit. But I'm often surprised whether it's a 12-year-old in India who's just read Cain and Abel or a grandmother who's reading it for the third time and flattered by both. But the last thing you want to do as a writer, Daisy, the last thing you want to do is try and imagine who your readers are and try and write for them. Or even worse, try and write in the hope of getting a film or television. Write your story and hope that the public love it and other things will flow from it. I understand that you are very popular with teenage girls in India. Um, 
It was interesting because I was just reading an interview with you in the Irish Times, um, a journalist called Patrick Frayne, um, who's talking about that. And, then, and I've just read Patrick Frayne's book, which is a collection of essays. It's called, I think, it, um, OK, Let's Do Your Stupid Idea. And I came to that book thinking it was going to be very, you know, wry and charming and quite sort of tongue in cheek and witty. And I was really stunned by how beautifully and sharply he has written about things like grief and, you know, the death of childhood friends. And Very fine writer. If you read his articles, his, his depth of insight is just amazing. I think he, he makes me sit up and think, which is what I admire about him. So I'm not surprised that uh, you were... Uh, surprised and delighted by his work. He's a class act. This is a clunky segue, and I know you talked about this a lot before, but on the subject of um, writing non-fiction and your enormously successful prison diaries, I'd love to talk about the experience for you of reading in prison. Well, one always says that in later life, when you're about to die, and I'm 80, you'll go away in a desert island. You'll go away to a desert island and read all those books you were meant to have read. So I set out on the classics, one after another, and I have to confess, I still haven't got to the end of Finnegan's Wake. Uh, I didn't find the leopard the genius it's meant to be. I have to be wrong because so many people tell me I'm wrong, so I know I'm wrong. Whereas again, it was a pleasure to return to Dickens and to Jane Austen and to return to people who do write beautifully and at the same time can tell a damn good story. Though I've always amused by two of the most successful storytellers in the world, Jane Austen, who writes a book about uh, four women desperately looking for a husband. <clears throat> and that's a massive success. So she writes a book about three women desperately looking for a husband, and that's a massive success. So she writes about two women desperately looking for a husband, so that's a massive success. So she writes Emma. I mean, one of the wonderful things is she did write the same story again and again, but wow, could she make you turn the page. Why? Because she wrote beautifully, and, but the storytelling is a God-given gift. The other that amuses me perhaps more is Agatha Christie, who I think wrote 120 books, and my favourites, The Poirots. I think, not, I think I can say nine times out of ten, they end up in the drawing room of a country house with every single one of the suspects sitting there waiting to be told who done it. Today, of course, they wouldn't even go in the same house. They'd all have legal representatives and they wouldn't be talking to anyone. She got lucky at one level. I always think the luckiest thing she, she got was no DNA. I mean, with DNA, <laughs> those wonderful people who wrote those uh, terrific crime stories at that time, and there were let's face it, three or four quite brilliant writers at that time doing crime stories. They had no DNA and they had no amazing way to solve crimes that they have nowadays. Uh, whereas the modern writer of that world has to take that into account. And sometimes, of course, that adds its own level of enjoyment. I think that's a very interesting point because I, I think you could, one could argue um, that genre has never fallen out of fashion but it is so enormously popular today and there are so many subcategories when you think of, you know, the psychological thrillers and, the, you know, the, the breadth of it and the different things that people are doing. I mean, what is it that you think makes crime 
perennially compelling. It's not universal, you know. Uh, I did a series of books called The Clifton Chronicles that in Germany, there uh, was one point when three of them were on Der Spiegel's bestsellers list at the same time. And then I started writing The Clifton Chronicle. Uh, I, then I started writing the William Warwick books, the story of Detective William Warwick. And the sales have dropped. They're not dropped badly, but they've dropped. So I chatted to my German publishers and they said, well, no, we love sagas. You love crime stories. And, and that was a re revelation to me. And I, I am now asking, I've asked my agent if he could define which countries like crime stories. And the first replies back of Britain and America are big on crime stories. But there are countries who, who don't have that a mad fascination uh, that the British and the Americans do. Other than, you know, your own creations, is Poirot your favourite detective or, um, or crime solver, or do you have others that you're fond of? Well, I'm also prejudiced by the fact that David Suchet and I went to the same school and are close friends, and I think he's a brilliant actor. He's very convincing Poirot, and how delighted I was that he got a knighthood in the recent honours list. So there may be a bit of prejudice for me there, um, but I love the silly ones. Uh, a P.G. Woodhouse mm. has, well, he's a genius, of course, has this ability to make the arist aristocracy, even in that period, uh, ridiculous and to be laughed at. Uh, what a piece of genius. And if a detective story is involved, and frankly, Jeeves is a detective. Don't let us yes. ourselves. Don't let's say he's a butler. He's a detective, and he sorts things out, <laughs> and a genius at it. So yes, I love P.G. Woodhouse as a child, and still do. Of the modern, P.D. James, I think, is a fine writer, fine writer. Though I was reading a foreword the other day, where she said uh, that she actually thought Agatha Christie was near to genius because she did it 130 times. <laughs> a lot of people say after three or four, oh, Jeffrey, I don't know where I'm, I can't find any more stories. She went on and on and on. And that in itself, of course, is, is amazing. You said about reading P.G. Woodhouse in your youth. What was your relationship with books and reading when you were very young? When did you start reading independently? And were there any books that you were sort of, you know, reading under the covers and aware that it wasn't perhaps the edifying choice that a parent would choose? Uh, yes, yes I, can, I can plead guilty to one of the under-the-cover ones. It was called Woman in Rome, and it was my first introduction to a loose woman. And everybody at my school in Somerset was reading it at the time, and I think I got a fairly old and ragged copy, but couldn't put it down, uh, only because... I was uh, a child growing up wondering about the world. So yes, Woman in Rome was my disgraceful book. But I was very privileged. I had a uh, marvellous English teacher called Alan Quilter, uh, who went on to be headmaster of Wells Cathedral School and we remained friends all our life. He introduced me to uh, writing and to literature and gave me my interest in the theatre uh, and my interest in the dramatic world. And I thank him for that, now long dead. I thank him for that because I do think you're damned lucky if you get a good teacher who guides you in the right direction. It's one of the reasons that 
my wife, who's a great educationalist, and I so passionately feel about what the young are going through at the moment because of COVID-19. They can't get to school. They don't have these older figures to guide them without them even realizing they're being guided. It's only years later, isn't it, that you suddenly say, wow, he was a good teacher. Wow, I got lucky there. Uh, I don't think I've worked that out for some time. And the sad thing about coronavirus is how many of our children are missing that opportunity and missing that great privilege of being taught by someone who is so good at what they do. What I think was true of my English teachers more than any of my other teachers, and, you know, they were pretty much wonderful and I was very lucky, but it was really the English teachers who fostered a love of something that went beyond exams and results and you need to do this and you need to get this and this is going to take you to the next stage. It was more of a really sort of holistic, I suppose, sense of this is going to be important to you and nourish you in ways that really have nothing to do with your sort of measured achievement. Yes, and we were both lucky. But Mary pointed out, my wife pointed out to me something uh, only two days ago that was absolutely disgraceful. Uh, When she read it, I couldn't believe it. My wife, as you may or may not know, is chairman of the Science Museum and has a very distinguished career as a scientist. She read out an article written in 1950 which said to women, or it called them girls, don't bother with science. It's not for you. You should learn to cook. And this was in 1950. Luckily, Mary was... Well, she she was five years old at the time. She clearly hadn't read that article and got on with it and read chemistry at Oxford. But that was the attitude. So a lot of these things, I think, Daisy, are attitude. If you're very, if you get a good teacher, mind you, they spot the ones who are enjoying the experience. And although I remember my physics master, Mr. Mead, with great affection, the only reason I remember Mr. Mead with great affection was because he was also the rugby master. If he'd only been the physics master, I would never have <laughs> I wouldn't have remembered his name. <laughs> so I got lucky with Mr. Quilter. I got lucky with the one subject that I was passionate about. We're sort of back to Duma, aren't we? Excelling in one area by accident because of interest in a different one. Yes. Oh that can happen. That can happen quite easily. That in a way happened my love of art, my passion for art, came not from any knowledge of art but from mixing with a particularly uh, nice young lady who didn't think a lot of me, but I was madly in love with her. Uh, And the only time I could ever get to see her was if I went to an art gallery. So I fell out of love with her and fell in love with the art. And I've been a mad art (laughs) collector and lover ever since. So you can never tell in life when something's going to guide you in a direction that has never crossed your mind. Uh, And that can be lucky. It's it's a wonderful story that I read quite recently and I wanted to write as a young, as a a short story. Wonderful young man sitting on a train who was working in a car factory and he was watching a man making bows for a violin. And the man leant across the carriage and told him what he was doing. 30 years later, he was the greatest bow maker in the world. Now, if he hadn't been on that train at that time, sitting opposite that man, his whole life would not have changed. And so it makes me wonder 
how many children out there have a gift but aren't allowed to even discover it? That's where, you know, what I love about reading in books so much is you come across one idea or something that's entirely new and then, you know, you see it absolutely everywhere. It's in the next 10 things you read. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We'll be back to Jeffrey soon, but now it's time for my steal of the week. Spookily enough, a book I discussed with Jeffrey. Okay, let's do Your Stupid Idea by Patrick Vrain is a book that I'd been looking forward to reading for a while. I was expecting wry, warm, funny, relatable essays about life and growing up in an Irish 80s childhood. I was not expecting to be sobbing helplessly at the end of every single passage. I will never forget this book. I will never forget Patrick's description of working as a carer or how it felt to mourn his beloved friend Paul or his words about the children in his life and the pain of missing fatherhood while being unable to take that particular path. It's a beautiful, sad, funny, perfect book and I cannot think of anyone who would not be uplifted and nourished by it. So that's Christmas sorted. Okay, let's do your stupid idea. It's published by Penguin Island and it's out now. Now back to Jeffrey. I love, and I know you do this very well, but um, novels with big art storylines. And two of my favourite books are uh, that Siri has set book, What I Loved. Um, what about, I Loved. What I Loved. What I Loved, Alison. And it's about art, is it? Yes. I'm, it's not, it's you're, about... you're not Alison. I'm leaning over to Alison to tell her I want a copy immediately because I love art books. What I Loved. Um, it's uh, set mostly in New York in the 80s. Don't give away um... too much. I promise no spoilers, Jeffrey. no spoilers. And it's about that world, I suppose, where the artistic clashes with the commercial. And there's a... Oh, I'm fascinated Very oh. weird sort of backstory as well that's quite autobiographical. Well, you're quite right. I have a passion for art, and it does get into most of my books. And uh, William Warwick begins his life as a constable in the Metropolitan Police looking for a Rembrandt that has been stolen. So yes, you're quite right. But I say to authors, use the knowledge you have. If you're 
putting wheels on a car, but you want to be a writer, write about that experience because people will know you know what you're talking about. I had a, a lady visit me quite recently and said, oh, I want to be a novelist, I want to be a novelist, but I don't have your privilege of meeting such interesting people, I don't have your life, I, I, I don't see how I can start. And I said, what do you do? And she said, I work in a hairdresser. And I said, how many stories do you think you could get every single day working in a, as a hairdresser? I mean, they've been the pouring out every... I said, you're the luckiest woman on earth. If you want to be a storyteller, they'll be spouting out at you every day. And that's the perfect point to begin a story, isn't it? Because I believe that most women and most men you sit down in that chair. Sometimes it's, you know, it's a routine thing and you're getting out of the way. But sometimes there's a bit of you that you've been through something and you're looking for transformation. And you want the external transformation to be internal. And that's why you're in the chair. And so it's every customer is the beginning of a novel. Yes. Yes, and she should have realised that. She missed the plot. And frankly, she won't be able to do the plot either. Because if you, you've got to see it in front of you. I love observing. I love hearing little stories. I love taking them on. And the reader, I hope, knows, oh, Jeffrey's experienced that. Jeffrey's seen that. But you're quite right. You're 100% right. You've then got to put it on paper and express it to the reader. And that is a totally different skill. Are there any moments like that that you can remember that haven't necessarily been sort of major plot points or, you know, started stories, but funny anecdotes or things you have, you know, heard or seen or observed unexpectedly that you have worked in? Well, funnily enough, book two of the William Warwicks, which comes out on November the 20th, on October the 29th, there is a classic example of that. There, I believe. There it is but a classic example. I decided with the Warwicks that I would take a different subject every time. So the first is art, fraud and theft. The second is drugs. The third is police corruption. Now the second, drugs, I was already being advised by Chief Superintendent John Sutherland of the Metropolitan Police, recently retired. And one of John's genius is that whatever the subject, he'll bring you in the top man. So he introduced me to the head of the drug squad. So I learned how many people are on heroin and how much it costs if you buy it on the street and what it does to you. I learned about cocaine and crack cocaine and marijuana. I learned all these things and, and I said to him, the facts are amazing and my readers will be fascinated by the facts, but let's have some stories in reference to what you just said. How about a story? And I realized he was quite incapable of telling a story. He was just brilliant on facts. And we were leaving where I'm sitting now. We were leaving the flat one day. And I said, tell me something that's annoyed you, Chief Superintendent. Ah, oh, he said, I had this burglar who knew I was chasing him. And I knew he knew I knew he was chasing him. <laughs> and it used to drive me mad that we couldn't nail him. But what really made me cross is that every Christmas he would send me a Harrods hamper. And of course, I have to give it straight into security and, and have it taken away. And he did it clearly to annoy me. And it was a, he said it was always a beautiful hamper full of port and cheese and biscuits. And I stopped and looked at him and said, that's the opening of the new book. That is not just a fact on heroin or crack cocaine. So the whole of the new book, if you open that first page... Read the first two lines, 
and you'll see exactly what I mean. I did. I remember. I remember the foie gras, a luxury way beyond her pay grade. Well remembered. But read the first four lines. The four of them sat around the table, staring at the hamper. Who's it addressed to? asked the commander. William read the handwritten label. Happy birthday, Commander Hawksby. You'd better open it, DC Warwick, said the hawk, leaning back in his chair. William stood up, unfastened the two leather straps and lifted the lid of a huge wicker basket that was packed with what his father would have called goodies. Now, you see, that opening came because the chief superintendent of the drug squad told me about a burglar who annoyed him. So I knew in his head and in several uh, of the people I take advice from, it's in their head if you can get it out. Yes, he was wonderful on facts, on uh, the drugs, but that was a truly human story. This blighter was sending him a hamper, and I now call those hamper stories. So when someone tells me a little vignette, a little idea, I call it a hamper story, uh, because that, that's a classic example. And there you are, I said to him when, when the book came out, you got the first five pages. And it's a story full of goodies to unpack. And, and indeed, the fact that you remembered something from it shows also that it was a story. I don't know if you know the writer Lissa Evans, um, friend of the podcast. I'm a big fan of her work. And she writes so beautifully about the, the Second World War in a period where food was scarce and food was so appreciated. And there's a, sort, there's a hamper moment towards the end of her latest book, V for Victory. And it's just so satisfying. And it's sort of, it's really very much the opposite of, you know, crime in that universe. But there's, I think I have maybe um, an avaristical gluttonous thrill at not just the eating of delicious food, but the anticipation of that and the pleasure of that. Um, are there any novels that you love about food or where that's uh, not necessarily the whole story, but an enjoyable aspect of the lives of the characters? Well, you're certainly aware uh, with certain novelists that they're drunks, they never stop smoking and they never stop eating. They can't, they can't but give it away. You turn the page and there they are, sitting in the Savoy, eating a three-course meal, which they're happy to describe in great detail, and the bottle of wine that goes with it. Uh, and again, it's just an example of a writer telling you what he, he or she knows. Jilly Cooper, who is a writer I love very, very much. Um, I love... Dear friend of mine. I love the amount of boozing in her books. Well, she's such a nice human being, uh, it's a weird thing. We got a letter from her this morning about coronavirus. She's such a sweet, dear lady, but she has an amazing ability to express on the page what we're going through. It's a great gift. So, the, oh yeah, that's the way I feel, Jilly. Yeah, that's the way I feel. And she, that is an amazing gift. Uh, she's also, by the way, as nice, uh, the, the image of her is 100% accurate. She's such a nice human being. I should admit, I, I've had the pleasure. I've had her slow gin fruit salad and, ah. um, and been in a similar state to many of her heroes and heroines. It's hard to walk home afterwards. Yes, yes. I absolutely agree. What I really enjoy so much about her writing is, well, you know, she does a very good villain, like the excellent and feared Ranaldini, um, but also... For the most part, people can be lovable but very flawed, but also no one's so terrible as to be entirely terrible. And there's Rupert, who's this very difficult bully who 
treats women badly, and yet he's a, a compelling hero and a reasonable hero. Fascinating you say that, because uh, in the Clifton Chronicles, Lady Virginia, evil piece of work, dealing with men in a totally unscrupulous way. And in the latest set of books, The Warwicks, I have Miles Faulkner, who's a brilliant fraudster and crook. Uh, and blow me, the letters are always about Lady Virginia and Miles Faulkner. And one other gentleman in my publishing, in the publishing house I'm published by, I'm privileged to be published by, said to me once, oh, I love Miles. And he's the most honest, decent, gentle human being I've ever come across. But he loves my villains. Mary always says, my wife always says, when she reads the books, that she thinks villains are easier to write than nice people. Nice people are boring. Villains are much easier to write. And so uh, Jilly Cooper could well be, you know, she could well have caught on to the fact that sweet, nice people are a bit boring. As, you know, I know Jilly a little bit, and I'd say that's not, not true in her case at all. No, I didn't suggest she was boring. She's one of the most exciting people I've ever met. <laughs> I agree. I wanted to ask about Mary and whether you share any books, whether you give each other books as gifts, if you disagree about certain books. No, is the answer. I buy books for her all the time, but they're always recommended by the Sunday Times, and they're usually why chemistry is important in the modern world. Or some book that I realise uh, uh, she, will, she will love because it's, uh, so, she, her subject is solar energy. So if anyone writes a sort of insight into uh, anything on science and it gets a very good review, I get it for her. She's not a natural novel reader. Uh, she's a huge admirer of Proust and I couldn't be much further away from Proust uh, if I tried. It's all an expression of humanity, yes, really. Isn't yes, it? well, she loves Proust. Bill Bryson as books on, on science. She found absolutely fascinating to read it from a layman's point of view. Uh, and I think when a professional scientist can say that about someone who's writing it in that way, that, that's very flattering indeed. So no, we don't recommend books to each other. I have an Indian lady in her 80s who regularly recommends books. And I keep in touch with her, I keep writing to her saying, what's the latest? What should I be reading? Because uh, we're clearly on the same wavelength. So you, once you've found someone who's on the way, same wavelength, so I'm going to read the book you've recommended immediately, and then I'll find if we're on the same wavelength. But it doesn't mean oh. we will be. Why should, why should we both like? For instance, my favourite author of all time is Stefan Zweig. And I think Beware of Pity is unquestionably a masterpiece. And I must have recommended it to a hundred friends over the last 20 years. Said, you must read Stefan Zweig. And I would say 50-50, they come back and say, 50% say, wow, Jeffrey, a masterpiece, a piece of genius. And 50% said, oh, I didn't get past page 40. So that what that teaches one is... There is no one who's universally acceptable. You try to find your reader base. You mustn't write for them, but you try to find them. And a lot of your closest friends won't read you because 
you're not there really base. And then a lot of people who you then get suddenly surprised. I had a, a letter quite recently from one of the nation's leading lawyers saying uh, it couldn't put me down. Uh, but he said, my wife will never read you. So it's a, it's a funny old world for the writer. They don't know who their readers are and uh, they can get some shocks. I, I've been, the biggest was in India. You were kind enough to mention India. I was, <clears throat> went to the Jaipur Book Festival and I, I confess that everything you've read is correct, that I, 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 I was just bowled over 7,500 people coming to hear me speak. And when it was all over, a 12-year-old boy talked to me about uh, Paths of Glory, the story of Mallory conquering Everest in the 30s. Staggering story, which uh, I had read and then turned into a novel. And he was questioning me at the age of 12. He was giving me a hard time. 12-year-olds do give you a hard time. They haven't time to waste. And he said, well, the love letters at the end, uh, uh, did you write those love letters? Or did uh, Mallory write those love letters? So I, I told him that I had written them and when discussing this. Yes, he said, and how much of the book is you and how much of the book is true? So I said, I think about 80% of the book is true and I've turned it into a novel. I said, but you must read my other books, I said. And then you'll see that really, frankly, Paths of Glory is a one-off. It's not my usual way. And he said, oh, I've read every one of your books. This is the one I wanted to talk about. He was 12 years old. He'd read every wow. one of them. I just sat there in total disbelief, staring into space. And by the way, that was a 12-year-old boy. Oh, the 12-year-old girls in India have read everything. They are the unbelievably well-read. And that's why, of course, they are now, India as a country is doing so well intellectually, doing so well in our universities, in American universities, all over the world. It's because they're so well educated. Uh, you mentioned your, your Indian pen pal, um, lady who recommends books to you. What has she been recommending lately? Uh, yes, she's very much into translation books, as I call them. Books she thinks people have missed. Books that she thinks should have been translated, so sometimes I can't read them at all. But others, it's a wonderful, I'm desperately trying to remember the title, a wonderful story set in Constantinople of a man who runs a small store and realises at the age of 50 that his daughter is truly remarkable. And it's the story of the daughter. And I just was bowled over by that. The author had captured the market in Turkey and the bargaining and captured the fact that this girl was just a yard ahead of them and brighter than these stupid men. Uh, that was wonderful. Uh, she, like me, loves Stefan Zweig, so he's had that as, uh, as a, a mutual love. Oh, yes, because I have never read any Stefan Zweig. It's ah. a shame, but I will now. He falls into two categories because he writes non-fiction and his books on Europe are absolutely staggering. I, I will look, I've got actually Beware of Pity in front of me here because I, I love it so much. But his non-fiction, there's one with Europe in the title. I mean, I have people who tell me it's the finest non-fiction book that's ever been written. And I'm talking about real giants. Anthony Beaver, for example, I read the other day, a great writer. I read the other day that Anthony Beaver thought that uh, Stefan Zweig was um, staggeringly brilliant and his non-fiction. So I say to those of you 
listening to this, if you're not someone who naturally is a, is, is a, a, a fiction reader, Stefan Zweig's non-fiction uh, is every bit as good. Uh, have you been able to send it Mary's way, or is it...? Oh, yes, no, Mary feels the same way. Oh, yes, in answer to that question, yes, she did read that. She did <laughs> actually read a book that I had recommended and felt the same way, yes. Uh, I, uh, uh, I mean, I did say earlier that it was a very 50-50, but those who agree with me, it's genius is the word they use. And his fascinating case, he ran away from Austria uh, because of Hitler, went to live in New York and committed suicide because he thought Hitler was going to win. So only ever wrote two novels, some amazing short stories. Chess is an amazing short story and some wonderful love stories must have been influenced because sadly the woman he was engaged to committed suicide as well. So it, it's, the backstory is amazing as well. I am sold. That, um, <laughs> Stefan Zweig, it's going to be my, hopefully my next, my next discovery. Well, I want one in return. I'm not sitting here doing this. Give me one in return. Give me an author I must read that you thought was wonderful. I know a book you might have read this. It came out this year. I think it's her first. I've got it here and um, it's supporting the microphone. So I have to go around and look. Yeah. Um, the Girl with a Louding Voice by Abby Dare. It's about a 14-year-old girl called Adini and she lives in a village in Kenya and all she wants to do is to teach and be listened to and she loves education and learning but she's being married off her father's a widow her mum's died and she's got brothers to support and she can't fit it's miserable she's the third wife and it's just awful and she makes her escape and you know, nothing I will ever go through compares to her journey. And I know while it's fiction, it is happening to girls and women in real life. But the the tone and the spirit, it's so propelling and it's something really compulsive. And I've never rooted for anyone so hard. Charming isn't quite the right word because that it's that makes it sound a little too frothy. But it's not. It's a book about something very heavy and very heartbreaking, but told with such lightness and humour and spirit. Well, that's, a, that's a great gift. And if you can get it from someone who's actually experienced it, been through it, I think in that way, Wild Swans is one of the great mm. books of all time. To have been written by a woman whose grandmother was a concubine whose mother was a Maoist uh, leader and she educated at Oxford, it was staggering. So when she wrote the story of her grandmother, her mother and herself, its genius is you knew you could never hope to experience the amazing things she'd been through, but she could bring her world to you. So I would add Wild Swan. Uh, to the books of genius I've read in my lifetime. Isn't it interesting how books have two purposes and they're the opposite that, you know, we, I think sometimes we hope to see ourselves and we want to see ourselves and then, but we also come in wanting to learn and wanting something entirely different and new. And you're saying about um, the very nice young man who works for your publishing company being so drawn to villains. And I suppose it's, we were always looking for those opposites and looking outside ourselves. And I think that's what keeps us human, really, that books are what keep us open to 
empathy that I think if you know if something is written well enough there's no one you can't empathize with whether they're a, a concubine or a Maoist or a villain if it's written well enough you're a hundred percent right if it's written well enough you'll read almost anything I mean Watership Down I mean who writes about rabbits running around a forest that's going to really attract me couldn't put it down so yes you get you get the occasional thing you think someone tells you the subject and you think that's not me but you give it three pages and you're in, in, in. Why? Because the writing's good. The genius is in the storytelling and in the writing. It almost doesn't matter what the story is if it's beautifully told. I wanted to ask whether there are any books that you have shared with your children, either when they were growing up or, or recently. Well, you've hit a good time to ask that question because my grandchildren are three, five well, naught, three, five, and seven, just becoming eight. And Mary and I are reading to them in a, 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 every evening. And uh, I, I'm not, in Mary's case, I think she's enjoying it more than the children. I think she's going back <laughs> to her youth and reading. So at the moment, she's doing The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with um, our eldest grandchild. And I'm enjoying that as much as she is, actually. The younger ones are, are getting Roald Dahl, a genius, of course, a wonderful storyteller, wonderful storyteller. I do, uh, do enjoy listening to those as well. So here I am at the age of 80, approaching second childhood, and reading these books to my grandchildren and getting the same pleasure I had when I was a child and, and my mother read them to me. What is striking is that if something is quite brilliant, Wind in the Willows, Alice in Wonderland, Narnia stories, whatever they are, they survive, they go on. Children will read them for a hundred years because the story is damn good and the child is gripped. I, I've seen my grandchildren rushing, rushing to turn the page. It's very moving and very flattering, uh, very flattering, both C.S. Lewis and to Mr. Roald Dahl, both no longer with us, both not forgotten. Funny because when you were talking about people, you know, queuing up around the block to read Dickens and desperate to get their hands on, you know, the, the new story, I was thinking about um, the best book in the world in the BFG and, the, you know, football games and football players were sort of unable to look at the pitch because they were reading during the game. Yes, I've only had that once in my life. <laughs> A.B. de Villiers may not mean anything to you. Captain of the South African cricket team was roundly told off by the Times for daring, daring to read uh, one of the Clifton Chronicles on the pavilion at Lord's while his team was batting. He got told <laughs> off for that. And ever since then, we've been sending him uh, the next book. God bless him. Oh, I'd send him a Harrods hamper for that. <laughs> Oh, Geoffrey, I think we are coming to the end of our time together, which brings me enormous sadness because I've had the loveliest time. Thank you so much for being such a great guest. Um, Wish you every success with Hidden in Plain Sight. Not that you need me to wish you anything. Well, you say that. The truth is, Daisy, the truth is that every single time you wonder if anyone will buy it. It doesn't matter how long you've been around. You still worry every single time. So, yes, I am still here shaking. Will anybody buy Hidden in Plain Sight? I'm praying, like you, they will. 
I'm very confident for you. If you, I've got, um, I've written non-fiction before. My first novel's out in February, and I'm already thinking no one's going to buy it. So don't be worried about the first one, Daisy. It would be remarkable if it was a bestseller. It's the second. It's a, usually the third or fourth where the breakthrough comes. It's almost unknown for it to be the first. So just battle on. Going to start the next one now. Well, I wish you very good Thank luck you very with your much. first book. My first book, I keep reading in the press, not a penny more, not a penny less, was an instant bestseller all over the world. <laughs> Rubbish. It only sold 3,000 copies. That's what it sold. And in paperback, in the first year, it sold about 25,000 copies. Uh, my first book was not a success in the 3,000 copies. And I mean, I rushed down. I was very stupid. I rushed down to the shops to get the Sunday Times to see if I was number one. I wasn't in the top 100. <laughs> number one. I was nowhere. Huge thanks to Jeffrey. Hidden in Plain Sight is out on the 29th of October. That's this Thursday if you're an eager podcast beaver and you're listening on the Monday this goes out. It's the second book in the William Warwick series and it's everything you might hope it would be. Addictive, gulpable, compelling and fun with characters you love and love to hate. I'm Daisy Buchanan and I have been your book inspector. Thank you so much for joining me. Your book is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast. You can follow us on social media at YBooked. And if you've enjoyed this episode, it would really make my day if you left us a five-star review. It's the best way to help new listeners to find the podcast and spread the word. Find the list of all the books Jeffrey talked about at acast.com slash booked. Finally, I leave you with this from Roxane Gay. Salvation is certainly among the reasons I read. Reading and writing have always pulled me out of my darkest experiences in life. Stories have given me a place in which to lose myself. They have allowed me to remember. They have allowed me to forget. See you next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.